Well, if you would, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is one of the most personal and intimate of all the Psalms. It's somewhat striking, isn't it, that the book of Psalms formed a book of worship for the people of Israel, for the people of God. But it was not only, it wasn't merely a songbook. I think sometimes it's misleading when we say this was the people's hymnal or songbook. It was much more than that. They were aware that they were reading Scripture. That's why they included it in their compilation of holy scriptures. Uh, They knew they were doing more than just writing songs here. But for something that was meant to be corporate, sung or read among all of the people, so many of the psalms are so intimately personal, even individual. Now, Psalm 139, in some ways, defies categories, but it is one of the most personal and intimate of all of the psalms. I would call it a psalm of communion or psalm of relationship. David is reveling in what it means to belong to God, what it means to be not so much to know God. We talk a lot about what we want to know God, but rather what it means to be known by God, to be known by him. And he is filled with words of awe. The psalm is filled with words of awe and overwhelming wonder. Over and over again, we will be struck with how small and how limited David felt as we will feel. Its main thought is really communion with God that is founded on this overwhelming assurance of God's sovereign oversight, God's sovereign involvement in each of our lives. There is no way of knowing David's circumstances when he wrote this psalm, but I think this just highlights its transcendent nature, how its truths transcend whatever the immediate situation was for David when he wrote it. Psalm 139 has come down to us to reveal what it means to belong to God, what it means to be in the presence of his knowledge And for us who know Christ, we can explore and appreciate and take to heart this psalm even more than David could. Now, just by way of kind of giving you a map of Psalm 139, it's made up of four paragraphs. Poetry, they're called strophes. But they're four paragraphs made up of six verses each. So if you look at your Bibles, you will see 24 verses. Every six verses is a separate paragraph. Verses 1 through 6, 7 through 12, verses 13 through 18, and then verses 19 through 24. But there is a significant shift from verse 18 
to verse 19. The first 18 verses are a meditation on God's sovereign knowledge and presence. And that that knowledge and presence are applied or lived out, experienced by God's people, each of God's people. Verses 19 through 24, the last paragraph, are a response to God's knowledge and his presence. God's sovereign involvement then in our lives, in each of our lives, calls for meditations of wonder and responses of zeal. That's how David responds, with zeal. Now let me pray for us, and then we'll get into the text. Father, grant us understanding now by the power of your Spirit who dwells in us. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Amen. So we begin then this morning with three meditations of wonder. Three meditations of wonder. And the first one is, he knows me. He knows me, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This first truth to grapple with is how perfectly and how thoroughly, how infinitely God knows you. Psalm 139 is one of the clearest displays of God's omniscience. In other words, God knows all things. God possesses complete knowledge of all things at all times. God never learns anything. God never grows. He never changes he never adapts. He never discovers anything. God's omniscience is one of God's attributes that sets him apart from all that he has created. It is a unique truth about God that doesn't apply to anything or anyone else. He knows everything, and God alone knows all things. Now, this includes data meaning facts. But at the same time, if you don't mind, just indulge me for a moment as I chase a really theological subject. Okay, indulge me, follow me. God just doesn't know data as if facts exist outside of himself. God's knowledge of reality determines what that reality is. It must. Otherwise, we would have to say that there are things exist outside of his knowledge that he 
knows or discovers. Okay, back to mainstream. Okay. God's knowledge is all comprehensive. What is so striking, though, about Psalm 139 is how God's omniscience is applied personally to you and to me. He knows the details of your daily activity, your sitting and your rising. He knows your very thoughts and motives, no matter how deeply buried you might think they are, God sees them. God sees your path, your life's direction, your journey on a broad scale. He sees the path of every decision that you make, every dilemma you're confronted with. He knows all of them. He sees all of them. He discerns them. According to verse 4, he knows how you will respond to every situation and every conversation. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. That doesn't just mean that God is aware of what you will say. I know he's going to say this. I know she's going to respond this way but that God is intimately involved in how you say what you say when you say it. God knows you thoroughly. But Psalm 139 verses 1 through 6 is not just a theological statement about God's omniscience. It is a cry of wonder while experiencing and realizing God's knowledge of you. And verse 1 really sets the tone for the entire psalm. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. This is intimately personal. No one can search you and no one can know you like God does. Not even you. Not even me. And there are two really important implications from this. And first of all, that is that God's knowing you is relational. It's relational. It is not just an awareness of data. To be known by God is to have his attention, is to have his oversight, his care in your life, actively involved in your life. It is the opposite, or I should say the opposite of being known by God is to be separated from him. It's to be hidden from him. As if God couldn't see you. As if God wasn't aware of where you are, what you're going through, what you're thinking, what you're tempted by. But he does. He sees, knows, and cares, and is involved. So this knowing you is relational. In one sense, God knows every person, every thought, every motive, of even of those who don't belong to him. 
But what David is talking about here is a knowledge of us, a care and an attention to us in every moment, in every situation, of every day, of every life of those who belong to him. This knowledge of you establishes a relationship between you and him. It is this knowledge of you that enables you to know him. It starts here. The second really important implication for each of us is this. God's knowing you includes evaluation. God's knowing you means he evaluates you. You have searched me and known me. This word searched, is, it could also be translated examine. You've examined me. Verse 2, the word discern, you discern, you perceive, you understand. This word in verse 3, searched out, you have searched out. This was a word for winnowing. The winnowing, the, the process of separating, winnowing out chaff from the wheat, from the kernels of the wheat. In other words, it's a sifting David says, you've searched out my paths. He means you have sifted me. You've separated out my motives and my agendas. We know, if we're wise, we know that when we make decisions, when we make choices, that often our motives are mixed. They're just they just are. We, we never operate from pure, completely pure motives. They're always mixed. I don't mean they're always wrong necessarily, but there is a mixture. God is able to sift through every thought, every motive, every intention of your heart and know what is pure and what isn't. This is why David says then in verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. In other words, David feels constrained by God's knowledge. So thorough, so intimate is God's knowing of David's thoughts, his intentions, his motives, even beyond David's own knowledge of them, that David feels, what he's saying is really is the sense of being surrounded, even besieged. The word here for hand is actually palm. And when he says, you have laid your hand on me, what David is picturing is the cupping of the hand, like we might do with a fly or a, or a cricket, that God has cupped his hand and placed it over us. God knows you so thoroughly, so completely, that there must be fear mixed with comfort. This awe includes a certain amount of uneasiness. It, in fact, it isn't awe without some measure of dread. 
No wonder, David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And what David is saying, he's not just saying, I can't comprehend it. That's true. But David is saying, your knowledge of me is like a wall around me. It's so high, I could never escape it. I could never, this word attain means to overcome or even climb over. I could never surmount the level, the intimacy of your knowledge of me. I could never outwit it. I could never outmaneuver your knowledge of me. God's knowledge of you is inescapable. It's inescapable. Which brings us to the next point of meditation. First of all, David says, he knows me. He knows me completely. He knows me thoroughly. Then in verse, verses 7 through 12, he says, he pursues me. He pursues me. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Now when David asks, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? He might be expressing the desire to flee from God's presence just because God's knowledge of him is so overwhelming. But I don't think it is a true effort to run from God. I don't think this is David saying he wants to pull a Jonah, even though Jonah hasn't happened yet. And, and, and rebel and leave God and go the opposite way. But it means that in this overwhelming reality, realization that God knows him so intimately, Dave, there is this, I've got to flee. It is simply the fear that we experienced when we are exposed before God. Think of anybody else in the scriptures who experienced this? I read Luke chapter 5 on purpose this morning. Simon Peter. Jesus says, cast down your nets. Peter says, Master, look, I know you're wise. I know you're sent from God. But I've been doing this all my life. We've been fishing all night. We've caught nothing. But you know what? It's an act of faith by Peter. Small act, but he says, because you say it, I'll let them down. Then, of course, the catch is so big, weighs down all the boats. Do you remember the response of the disciples summarized? They were astonished. That word is exactly what David is experiencing in Psalm 139. And do you remember Simon Peter's response? Verses 8 and 9, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. I think Simon Peter right then wanted to mount up on the wings of the dawn. He wanted to settle on the uttermost parts of the sea. But he was constrained by the presence of Jesus right there on the boat. And instead of fleeing, asked Jesus to depart. Not because he hated him, not because he resented him, but he was so overwhelmed by Jesus' intimate knowledge, omniscience of the Sea of Galilee and all of its fish life and his power and presence to redirect all of the fish in the lake into Peter's nets. That's Peter's response. That ought to be everybody's response. So the answer to the questions in verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence, is answered by nowhere. Nowhere. And then he gives some examples. The heavens, you're there. What about Sheol? This is the grave or the underworld. It's not trying to define the underworld or the afterlife as heaven or hell, but it is simply someone who's dead and is passed on beyond life, the grave. What about there? Nope, you're there too. What about the mounting on the wings of the dawn? It could mean that David is saying, if I could just keep going east and fly into the sun, it could mean, and I think this is what David's picturing is, if I could, as the in the same way that the dawn peaks over the edge of the earth and light travels at the speed of light, if I could mount up with the wings of the dawn and speed away with the speed of light, I could not outrun you. I could not escape you. Or the uttermost parts of the sea, if I could go into the infinite west. David isn't thinking geographically about the edges of the Mediterranean Sea to the west of where he's standing in Jerusalem. But he's talking about like we look at the ocean and see nothing but a horizon of sea and then the sky. For all we know at the moment, that's the edge of the world. That's what David is saying. If I could just fly off the edge of the world, you would still be there. You would still be there. Everywhere I go or could go, you are there. David is, again, recognizing God's omnipresence. Like his omniscience, God's omnipresence. God is always everywhere at one time. God does not teleport. He does not travel from one place to another in the blink of an eye. He is always in both places, all places, anywhere you could go. This includes time. God is present at both the beginning of time and the end of time. That doesn't mean, that means for God, the future isn't going to happen. It has already happened. He's already there. God is omnipresent. He's at the beginning and end of time simultaneously. Time exists within him. But just as with his omniscience, Psalm 139 is about experiencing, knowing his 
omnipresence, his presence. It's what his presence means for his child. God's presence means that even in those remote, forsaken, dangerous places, he shall lead you. His right hand shall hold you. And even if you are, as David describes here, engulfed by darkness that would try to hide you, to obscure you from God's attention and care, even if it's your trying to run from him, even if it's your trying to get away like Jonah trying not to go to Nineveh, Even if you are engulfed by darkness, there is no darkness for God. He is the God who created light out of darkness, Genesis 1. Who called light into being. Even if no other living person can see you. If no other living person knows the depths of despair that you feel, or the extent of your pain, the emptiness of your life, the threat of destruction that you face, God does. God does. Not only does he see it from afar, oh, Sean's in trouble again. He is there. He is present. Even in these places, he is leading you. This isn't leading like telling you which direction to go. It means that he actually has a hold on you and is moving you through it. Even in these places, he's leading you. He is keeping you secure by his power. That's what the right hand means here. Your right hand shall hold me. Your power, your strength. You cannot be separated from him. You cannot be hidden from him. You pursue me even into chaos and misery and catastrophe. God's knowledge is inescapable, and so is his pursuing presence. So when I say that it's about experiencing God's presence, what I mean is not, it's just not knowing God is everywhere. It is knowing that, but knowing that what that means is that anywhere I go, anything you go through, God is never withdrawn. God is never absent. He is always there. Well, just how dark can it be? Just how hidden can someone's life be? Well, not even your non-existence can hide you from God. God knew you before you even existed. This is the third meditation, verse 13. You crafted me. You crafted me. Not just you created me, but you 
crafted me. You know me. You pursue me. You crafted me. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. As David considers the darkness that would seek to cover him, he reflects on the mystery of conception of his life in the womb. And what is striking is not that God knew that God was somehow aware that you were conceived at the moment you were conceived, but that he directly designed and crafted you in the womb. He formed your in, inward parts. Now, when we hear inward parts, we think of, oh, my kidneys, my spleen, my, my gallbladder, right? These are our inward parts. That's not what David's talking about. Certainly, God crafted those as well, but that's how handled later here, and you saw my unformed frame. David's saying here in his inward parts is he's talking about everything that, that makes him up, that makes him David. Everything that makes you, you. God designed and crafted. He constructed you, your DNA, your personality, your emotional makeup, your talents. Now, I realize that genetics are at work that there are such things as genes and those get passed on from father and mother to child. They determine your eye color and your hair color and those kinds of things. But God has ordered genetics. Just because biology is at work doesn't mean God is not at work in the biology to craft you and design you. Because even though you inherit genes, you are not identical to any other person who has ever existed. In knitting you together, biology didn't just take its course and produce you. God was at work crafting every detail, including your gender. including your gender, God determined whether you were male or female Amen. in the pattern of Adam or Eve. In verse 14, the intricacy of design causes David to tremble with awe and to praise the creator. Realizing this truth, 
I praise you. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. But realizing this truth does not create self-importance for David. Do you see self-importance coming out here? Is David suddenly like, oh, yeah, I must be the center of the universe because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. No, no. It creates a God importance. It puts God at the center. So even before you were born, the Lord knew you. Relationship. He knew you, and he crafted you with purpose. Again, we are assured that what is hidden in mystery from us is known to God. Your frame was not hidden from him when you were being made in secret, when you were intricately woven in the depths of the earth. What does he mean, depths of the earth? This is in the womb. But remember that Adam was formed out of the dust of the earth. And so all of us are. And when we die, we return to the dust of the earth. So the creation of each human being follows that pattern in the divine plan. So David says, it was woven in the depths of the earth. Even when Adam was created, David was woven together in that sense, right? And so were you. David says, his eyes saw your unformed substance. And yet, according to verse 16, there's even more. Because the sovereign, all-knowing, ever-present God who created you formed every day of your life and documented your life's span from beginning to end. And he did this before the first day of your life ever began. So great is his purpose for you. So intricate is his involvement in crafting you, in pursuing you, in knowing you, that the Lord has crafted the story of your life from beginning to end. Now, I know what some of you are wondering as you hear all of this. Couldn't you have just given me a little higher metabolism? Right? Can you have given me blue eyes? I think that would have been cool. Maybe just a little taller. Then there are deeper questions like, why would God craft me with a deformity? Or why would God craft me without sight? Why would God craft me with autism? Why would God craft me with a poor immune system so that I'm sick all the time? Why would God craft me with a a defective chromosome or a chromosome missing altogether? I don't have answers to all of the questions of why. I do know that Jesus explained to his disciples when they saw the blind man begging by the side of the road who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. I know that Jesus answered that that man was born blind, quote, that the works of God 
might be displayed in him. John 9, verse 3. And I tell you that you or that person you love have been lovingly crafted by design to bear that deformity, to bear that disability for the honor, the honor of the one who loves you, crafted you, knows you, and pursues you. And perhaps no other passage of Scripture establishes the dignity of every human life and establishes God's right as creator over every human life, like Psalm 139 does. This is why we oppose abortion as murder. This is why we fight against genocide. This is why we reject euthanasia as a valid alternative to a life that is suffering and near its end even. It is why when we think of transgenderism, we reject it as a valid way of handling pain and suffering and loss and abuse, which many people, my limited experience, I've found, seem to have in common when they seek a sex change. We see that as Despite the suffering that may have caused it, we see it as unbelief. It is ultimately a complaint against God. These verses are a, are a lamp of truth to illuminate, to shed light on God's purpose of design and crafting each of us. And that our gender, our sexual gender, goes to our personhood. Now, verses 17 through 18 are a conclusion to these meditations. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. So David is overwhelmed with just the vastness of God's purposes, his plans, the intimacy of God's involvement in his life, and this wonder... This amazement forms a transition from this almost dreamlike reflection to a reality of circumstances. I awake and I am still with you. I think that's what David is getting in here. It's not so much that he's asleep, but that he has been in this state of meditation and contemplation. And it's like kind of like when you and I as a mild example, wake up from a daydream. And you're like, what's going on? How long have I been thinking about this? How long have I been chasing down this rabbit hole? That's what David's, when I awake, 
I am still with you. He awakes from these meditations to the plots and the attacks of the wicked. But this contemplation of the truth of God's sovereign oversight of his life, his intimate knowledge and pursuit of David, has prepared him to respond. It has given him a worldview. It has equipped him to have a clear understanding of his situation and maybe even more importantly himself, his own need. So after three meditations of wonder then, we see two responses of zeal. The effect of understanding and recognizing these things about God's knowledge and presence awakens a zeal within David. And first of all, it awakens a zeal for God's name. A zeal for God's name. Psalm 139, verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. These verses give us the only hint of what circumstances might have been surrounding the writing of this psalm. It may be that David is facing attacks from the wicked. There are many psalms that describe that. But it would seem to be broader. David doesn't say anything about asking for personal vindication here for himself, but his perspective is such that he sees, after his contemplation of who God is and what it means to be in a relationship with the all-knowing, ever-present God, he looks and sees humanity, the rest of humanity who are separated from God, who don't have that relationship in their ultimate sense as wicked rebels, bloodthirsty, opposed to God. This hatred David has for God's enemies is what we would call righteous indignation. This isn't a, I shouldn't say it's not personal, it's personal for David, but it's not personally directed. It's not vindictive, it's not revenge for a personal suffering on David's part. David has offended. His hatred is a hatred that springs from his loyalty to God, his love for God. His recognition of how worthy God is that every human life love him the way David loves him. David is offended by the malice and the rebellion of those who don't love the Lord the way the Lord deserves to be loved and adored and feared. Jesus said, Something similar when he gave his kingdom manifesto in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's what David wants. David wants righteousness. Now, not personal righteousness. That's in the next two verses. 
but he means justice. He means righteousness to rule over the world and the human race, that everything will be set right, and it angers him that there's anybody who would not love God and instead rebel against him and take up arms against him and plot against him and scheme against him. That's what has offended David. And it is really more than just a desire for these things. David is revealing what is to come. In praying that God would do this, he is establishing the fact that God, in his sovereign knowledge, in his sovereign presence and power, will overthrow wickedness and wicked people that he will overthrow those who rebel against him and reject him. So David, in thinking through God's knowledge of himself, looks now at the world as a whole, and he's offended and angered by anyone who would rebel against this God who has not only created David, but each and every one of those people as well. But there is more, and that is that this contemplation awakens for David a zeal for personal holiness, a zeal for personal holiness, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way everlasting. Did you notice that David uses the same words from verse 1? Search me. Know my heart, my thoughts. What he recognizes to be true in verse 1, that God has done, you have searched me, you have known me. He now asks for, in verses 23 and 24, he asks God to do these things including, most importantly, evaluating him. Sift me, try me, see if there be any grievous way in me. Because if there is, it stands between you and me. And I want to know you in the way that you know me, Lord. David longs for God to evaluate and reveal to him and deal with sin in his heart that he might be in God's presence with integrity, with wholeness. Many of the Psalms in this way, I shouldn't say many, some others do. Psalm 19 especially, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Same cry, same cry to deal with me, expose me, search me, know me, try me, sift me. But you see, this is the kind of zeal, it's this zeal that flows from a deep reflection on God's sovereign but intimate involvement in our lives. There is a zeal for his name a zeal for righteousness, that every life would love him and seek him as he's worthy of, and a zeal for personal holiness, 
zeal that our hearts will be found filled with whole devotion to him. Now let me ask you, have you meditated on the Lord's sovereign, intimate oversight of your life? And do you believe him? Because you see, Psalm 139 is not just to be read, it's to be embraced. It's to be read with faith that you, like David, are known by God and pursued by God. We're crafted by God. His knowledge and his presence ought to overwhelm you. Secondly, how zealous are you for his name? How zealous are you that God's righteousness would come, that he would rule? Do you hate sin and rebellion as God does? Do you tolerate it? Especially sin and rebellion in your own heart. Do you have a zeal for holiness in your life? Do you care to stop asking the question, what can I do? What are all my freedoms? Start asking the question, what will please you? What can be burned out of my life that I might stand before you in integrity? Because whether you have recognized it before this morning or not, your life lies open before the all-knowing God. And he sees everything anyway. We are to embrace that truth and ask for a searching, for a trying. Because if there's anything in my life standing between me and the fullness of knowing God, then I want it gone, right? To know God means being known by God. That's the beginning point is to be known by him. Father, we are your people in your presence. We are before your face. And Lord, may it be that Psalm 139, these blessed, powerful words would awaken within us a zeal for your name, that you would be honored in the world, and a zeal for personal holiness in each of our own lives. You search your people. And you search each of our hearts. Lord, as terrifying as that might be for every one of us, may it also be a thrill of joy, a comfort that you and your sovereign Knowledge and in your sovereign presence, know us, pursue us, sift us. Lord, in that in doing so, you make us right before you. In your name, we ask all of these things and proclaim them. Amen.